If you love Snapped, Women Who Murder, you're going to love listening to true crime or mystery titles on Audible. The audio title I'm diving into again is one of my favorites to revisit, Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Ulshaker. Even if you think you know the details of the cases, former FBI unit chief John Douglas took on from documentaries or the scripted show, the audio title goes above and beyond in bringing you along with him in his career, trying to catch serial killers and serial perpetrators. He used psychological profiling to dive into the minds of notorious criminals. The title includes his hunt for a killer in Alaska, the Green River Killer, and so much more. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. It is the home of storytelling after all. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. That's audible.com slash snapped or text snapped to 500-500. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. A struggling single mother settles into a life of ease when she lands in the arms of a popular Baltimore bar owner. She just wanted a better life. He liked her personality. She made him feel young. She felt protected when she was with him. But when shots ring out after last call, it's closing time for the life he built for her. There were several phone calls to 911. We find him laying in the front yard. He's obviously been shot. Investigators must determine, was this a random crime or an arranged hit? He was shot eight times. That's a lot for a robbery gone bad. As the investigation deepens, self-preservation takes over. We start to think, what do I have to do to keep this lifestyle? The quest for answers will bring detectives face-to-face with one of the seven deadly sins. Slaw, it sneaks up on you, but slaw actually in the long term, it can be very damaging. She loved her lifestyle. The more he gave her, the more she wanted. And a twisted plot will prove that idle hands, like the good book says, are indeed the devil's workshop. They took advantage of people, didn't really work that hard, would take the easy way out. Some people are takers, born wanting to receive and never to give anything in return. You chip away, slowly but surely, at the little things. And the whole story just kind of crumbles. May 22nd, 2010. It's 2 a.m. on a quiet Saturday in Dundalk, Maryland. I was on patrol. It was a weekend night in Dundalk, so it gets a little busy. You know, it's bar closing time, and at bar closing time, people tend to get a little rowdy. 
At 2.24 a.m., this typical weekend patrol route takes an unexpected turn when a 911 call comes in. Baltimore County 911. I need to, an ambulance here at Hobbs in um, a gentleman just got shot in his front yard. There were two patrons walking in the area that saw some of what had happened. They called 911. We don't usually get calls at the Hops Inn. This is a quiet neighborhood. So we knew something serious was going on. Sergeant Ray Patterson is one of the first to respond. When I pull up to the scene, it's pretty chaotic. We find him laying in the front yard. He's obviously been shot. There wasn't a whole lot of blood. It wasn't until the medics got there and started assessing the wounds that you could see that there were multiple holes. Onlookers tell police the victim is Lee Martin, the owner of the bar he's lying in front of. As medics work to save Lee's life, the situation looks grim. He was obviously not in very good shape. He did have a pulse. After he was shot, they had asked us if we had any idea who would have done something like that. I had no idea, no idea. For Maryland native Lee Martin, working hard was second nature. Lee was a hard worker. I mean, he was a good man in the community. He would do anything for anyone. Sweetest guy, just a big old teddy bear. That's what I used to call him. From a young age, Lee's life revolved around the family business, a neighborhood bar called Hops Inn. Lee hired me as a barmaid. The bar, that was like my home away from home. You knew basically everybody that came in there. The house that they lived in and the bar were next door to each other with a small two and a half foot stone wall in between. He didn't even walk out to the sidewalk. He just stepped over the wall. His parents were getting older, and the bar was a large commitment. Lee would go there every night to close the bar. So around 1.30, he would leave his home, go to the bar to help close up. Lee was so dedicated to his bar that his personal life often suffered. He had been married and divorced with two sons. Still, Lee continued to pour his energy into his two greatest loves, his bar and his boys. He was excellent to his kids, to his boys. Everything changed for Lee when he put out a help wanted ad for a bartender in 2001, and Jacqueline Lindgrand answered the call. She was hired on the spot because she went behind the bar and did her thing, making drinks and Lee liked what she did and hired her. She was very happy. The job was a huge win for Jacqueline, who had struggled much of her life. I was a single mom with Jacqueline for a couple years. Then I got married and knew it was a mistake. And so I walked out with the kids. Jacqueline was sociable. She had a protective side about her, like protective of her brother, protective of Melissa. She had very bad experience with high school. She was going through a gothic stage, so my parents decided it was best to bring her out. By age 21, Jacqueline found herself alone and raising a young daughter named Trinity. You know, she had to worry about things for Trinity, the diapers, the formula. She just wanted a better life for her and Trinity. She worked two to three jobs. 
at a time just to make ends meet. Jacqueline desperately wanted love and a break from working so hard to provide for her daughter. When she met her new boss, Lee Martin, it seemed he could provide both. I think that she saw somebody that was going to support and take care of her. They just started dating. They hit it off. She always liked the older guys. I think she felt protected when she was with him. She felt safe. And she felt like it was going to be a good family dynamic for her and Trinity. She moved in with him. It was like gradual. You know, they didn't rush nothing. They took their time. And for the first time in her life, Jacqueline could finally relax. She did not have to work. They were well off enough to be able to do that. Lee bought her anything and everything she needed. She was able to attain a level of comfort that she hadn't had before. She finally had a man that was going to provide everything for her. All she had to do was sit back, relax, and enjoy it. She loved her lifestyle. She was the type of person that she would be like, I'm the queen of the castle. Life got even better for Jacqueline in 2006 when Lee decided to pop the question. I told her congratulations. I was like, how happy are you? She goes, I'm ecstatic. Later that year, the couple tied the knot and Lee accomplished his lifelong dream, taking full ownership of Hops In. His dad was getting sick and he's just getting tired of it. So he sold it to Lee. It looked completely different clean. It was so nice. He wasn't a, a hands-off kind of owner. He's a very hands-on guy. He loved Dundalk. He loved his bar. He loved his family. He made everybody feel at home. He did anything for anybody. He would give his shirt off of his back, and he was one of a kind. Lee made sure his family had everything, everything their heart desired. Lee provided for them. They didn't want for anything. But on May 22, 2010, the family's happiness is threatened when Lee is critically injured steps from his home and bar. He was shot in the chest three or four times and also shot in the head. As Lee is rushed to Bayview Hospital, police knock on his front door. We had to notify Jacqueline that you know her husband had been shot right here in the front yard. When she was notified, she seemed kind of oblivious to the situation. She slept through it. She was scared. She didn't know what was going on. She was kind of in a situation where we're throwing this on her right then and there. It's a shock. And one of the first things we needed to do was to get her away from the scene. While Jacqueline is transported to the hospital to be with her husband, officers begin to investigate who could have harmed such a beloved pillar in this community. I think the police were still grasping at what was going on. The whole street was out because he was such a part of the community that everybody was blown away by what had happened. In the early morning hours of May 22nd, 2010, 43-year-old bar owner Lee Martin is transported to Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center with severe gunshot wounds. His wife, Jacqueline, holds vigil by his side. 
He was shot in the abdomen, the heart, and the head. He may have been alive, but I don't think that it was really much longer. At 2.58 a.m., everyone's worst fears come to pass. I heard Melissa Lynn get up here, and my dad looked at me and said, got a phone call from Baltimore County Police Department. Lee has been deceased. For Lee's 29-year-old wife, Jacqueline Martin, the news is too much to bear. She was, like, in shock, like she couldn't believe it, like, um, it wasn't real. Officers are eager to speak with Jacqueline, but for now, they give her some time to process the tragic news. Outside Lee Martin's bar and home, the investigation into his homicide is underway. The first thing we had to do was, you know, start thinking about securing the scene, find any witnesses, preserve the evidence, and get this place calmed down a little bit so we can actually find out what's going on. He had a cell phone, his wallet, there was a pack of cigarettes, flip-flops that had been, I guess, when he fell back, the flip-flops came off of his feet. And the area was a well-traveled area, but because police don't know what they have and what is of value and what isn't, they collect everything. What investigators don't find at the scene is just as important as what they do find. There's no bullet casings. Obviously, we're looking at some type of revolver, something that keeps the bullet casings in the gun after the shot's been fired. Most uh, shootings are done with semi-automatics. There's probably less revolvers floating around than there are semi-automatic weapons. If the gun used in Lee's murder is rare, it could help detectives find his killer. If someone has a revolver, chances are there's several people that know about it. It's like an antique or it's something that's been passed down through the family. It's rare that younger people are going and buying revolvers in a gun shop. As they continue to process the scene, detectives begin to note contradictions in the evidence left behind. It appeared from all purposes at that point in time that it was a robbery gone bad, except he still had his cell phone on him. He still has his wallet on him. He's wearing his watch. Since Lee's personal belongings were left untouched, investigators wonder if the assailants snatched a larger prize. Because he would close the bar at night, police certainly didn't know whether or not he carried that money home or if it was left at the bar in a safe. Hours into the search, police get their first lead when they speak with a couple who claimed to have witnessed a portion of the attack. They were walking home when they saw what appeared to be two black males with the victim and one of them shooting the victim. The victim falling to the ground. They were able to tell the direction that the two men ran, but they didn't run after the two men. They instead tended to the victim. After hearing the couple's account, police spring into action. We called for our canine. They're excellent trackers. And our canine was there relatively quickly, so we knew we were going to have a good track. The canine dogs picked up a trail, and they followed that trail until they lost the trail at the end of a dead-end street. That happens a lot. The dog will take us to a location, but they can't tell you if he got into a car and drove away. Police communicate this information to their eyes in the sky. Our Baltimore County helicopter was up. They're spotlighting the neighborhood, the dark areas where 
did someone run down this alley or did someone run down that alley? Or are there cars speeding away from the neighborhood that we can't see from where we are, but they can see from above? Back on the ground, investigators receive word of other crimes reported in the area that same night. We started getting these other calls. Previous to the shooting here at Hops, there was a robbery reported a block or two away. The description was two black males with a gun robbing someone. And then after the incident here at Hops at 4 a.m. or so, there's another robbery of sorts where the description is two black males with a gun in a van that robbed someone. We started thinking that we have uh, a little crime spree going on right here in this neighborhood. But as police learn more details about the other incidents, something about Lee's attack stands out. Two guys, you know, sticking up somebody in the, at two in the morning and then shooting him isn't that rare. But this seemed to be particularly brutal. He was shot eight times. That's a lot for a robbery gone bad. When you find a victim that is shot at close range nine, eight, nine times, you tend to believe that it's pretty personal. If the attack was personal, who could be behind it? A few regulars offer up some insight to police. There was some talk from the bar patrons and people who worked at the bar that there was this person by the name of Kyle who was selling drugs or attempting to sell drugs at the hops in at the bar. And that Lee had had a conversation with him and told him he couldn't be there and he couldn't do that. And there was some sort of confrontation that took place. Potentially, that's a motive for someone. You're taking away their livelihood, although it's an illegal livelihood. It's their livelihood. The witnesses had thought it was maybe retaliation for him, his drug policy, that someone had gotten angry and killed him for being kicked out. According to witnesses, Kyle hadn't been running his drug operation alone. He was often seen working alongside his sister, Ashley. We start digging into the histories of these people and find that the information that we're given from witnesses is accurate. They are drug dealers. They have been charged with selling drugs. Investigators work quickly to track the siblings down. When we looked into Ashley and Kyle, the alibis were, were pretty good. Ashley was in jail, so that's pretty much confirmed that she couldn't have been there. And Kyle was at the Railway Inn, the other bar right up the street, with multiple people there with him. So it was pretty easy to confirm that neither one of them could be responsible for the shooting. As day breaks, detectives return to the station and add a new wrinkle to the case when they run Lee's name through their database. Lee reported to the police that his ATM credit card at a local bank had been compromised and that there were four transactions that he had not made. He was missing about $1,000. In the aftermath of Lee Martin's violent murder, Baltimore County investigators have uncovered a report Lee filed 24 hours prior to the shooting. His ATM card was used with his PIN number 
to withdraw money from a bank machine, an unauthorized withdrawal that wasn't his, who is using his credit card and how did they get a hold of it? How did they get his PIN number? Police believe the unauthorized withdrawals were completed by someone with intimate knowledge of Lee's personal information, a possibility Lee himself had addressed when he made his initial report. He believed his wife knew the PIN number, but he didn't think that she would have done this. In his statement to police, Lee said Jacqueline was with him when each withdrawal occurred. To investigators, the timing of the thefts and Lee's murder is no coincidence. It was kind of a red flag that it was just prior to the actual murder. Someone was taking his money out of the bank account. We needed to find out who that someone was, because chances are that someone is going to link us to what's going on and why he was shot. However, according to the original report, the ATM surveillance footage will not be available to review for two more days. Not content to sit idly by, police circle back to Lee Martin's wife, Jacqueline, who's had a few more hours to process her loss. So she's initially interviewed the 22nd, and I remember her just hysterically crying. Detectives ask Jacqueline to describe the hours leading up to the shooting. What time did you go to bed, do you remember? When he got up to go close the bar. What time did he go? We fell asleep on the couch. What time did he wake up to go close the bar? His alarm was set for 1.20. He would leave his home, go to the bar to help close up, to make sure that everything was correct, get the bartenders home, and then he would lock up the bar and walk home. That was every night that the bar was open. Jacqueline says the only thing different this time is that Lee didn't come home. She goes back to sleep. The next thing she knows, he's not back. The first thing we want to know from her is who would Lee have a beef with or who would have a beef with Lee that may be responsible for this? He always has problems with people. Kids who don't have ID because they're not old enough or somebody who's plastered and wants to try and buy a beer at 2.30 in the morning. But Jacqueline is adamant none of it seemed serious. She could not think of anybody who would want to hurt him. With no new solid leads from Jacqueline, investigators head back to Hopson, where they're met by Bill Tolbert, a close friend of Lee's. Bill was the eyes when Lee wasn't there. He definitely had Lee's back. Still in search of a motive, detectives ask if the bar's previous night's profits are accounted for. We knew that Lee had just closed up the bar, and we knew that the nightly cash till had been closed out. Um, we thought there was a possibility he was he had that in an envelope or cash bag, and maybe that was taken. He would always come over before we ended our shift. We would count out our registers. Then he would take the money, and as far as I knew, he always put it upstairs in the safe. Mr. Tolbert was able to open the safe. There was about $2,000 in the safe from the night before, and everything was exactly as it should have been. The discovery that nothing was stolen from Lee on the night of the murder sends the investigation in a new direction. Police figured this had to be an inside job. This was someone that Lee knew personally. 
Before detectives leave the bar, they note the outside security cameras located near an area of interest. On the side of Hobson, there's a stairwell that goes up to the second floor. If you're hiding back behind this stairwell, you're in darkness, and, and no one's going to be able to know that you're there. That would definitely be a place to hide until the victim showed up. But where the incident actually took place, they were inoperable at the time. The security cameras are out due to construction. It was extremely disappointing. Then on May 24th, two days after the shooting, investigators finally gain access to surveillance footage from the ATM where Lee's debit card was fraudulently used. You got a pretty clear picture of who was responsible for the ATM fraud. The footage reveals a man wearing a hooded jacket and a baseball cap. They see him using the credit card. And when the credit card's used, the PIN number is used. He was wearing a hat. You could only see his partial face. He was trying to hide his face from the camera because he knew the camera was rolling. While investigators work to identify the man, they receive a phone call from Lee's friend, Bill Tolbert. We got this tip that this employee has information that he needs to talk to the police about. He was a little afraid to contact us, but he really had some information that needed to be told. A detective sits down with the employee who recounts the strange events of May 22nd, the night Lee Martin was murdered. He says that on that particular night, he's home. And his roommate, Robert Garner, is all jacked up. He is hyped up. And he has two friends over by the name of Storm Davis and Brandon Roth. And they are kind of getting dressed in black. They're putting black on their face. They're putting hoodies on. They were all excited. He, he started, Rob started running around the house, you know, getting you know black jacket on. He put the stuff on his eyes. So I figured something was going on there. And he showed me the gun. Though he's unsure of the caliber, the employee believes the gun was a small revolver. He describes the gun and um, had never seen him with a gun before. The employee says the three men then left in a hurry around 1 a.m. Did he come home? Yeah. What time was that? About three. Okay. Wearing the same stuff? Yeah. How did you put that when Rob left the house with a gun and Lee being shot, that those two things become one? Um, because I know that Rob does not like Lee. He hates Lee. He hates Lee with a passion. But why would Rob Garner have such hatred for this beloved bar owner? He tells us that Rob was Lee's brother-in-law, Jacqueline's brother. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. 
doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. A Hopsin employee has just revealed his roommate, 26-year-old Rob Garner, and his two friends, 19-year-olds Storm Davis and Brandon Roth, were acting suspicious on the night of Lee Martin's murder. He tells us that his roommate might be involved in something that wasn't, uh, wasn't good. He thought Rob was involved in some criminal activity. The mystery unravels further when detectives learn that Robert Garner is the brother of Lee's wife, Jacqueline Martin. We have someone that we know is linked to the victim. We know that they have access to credit cards and information. Authorities secure arrest warrants for all three men mentioned in the employee's account. Storm Davis and Brandon Roth are the first two arrested. They are actually brought in at the same time. They are placed in two separate rooms. Detectives start with Storm Davis. Can you tell me what you did last Friday night and where you were? He talks about how he and Brandon Roth are watching a movie with a couple of other friends when they receive a phone call from Rob Garner saying, hey, we need to do something tonight. They think they're going to beat somebody up. And he wanted me to help him. The plan is that Brandon will drive them to the location. He parks a block away. Where'd you guys go from there? Under the back steps, on the side of the building where the stairs go up to the second level. And they were waiting there for Lee to come out. While they were waiting, Rob was making a phone call or two to an unknown person at the time to let them know where they were and what they were doing. Yeah, I could hear him talking on the phone, and I kept hearing him say, I love you. He's figuring that it's someone that's very close to him. Rob hangs up the phone, and it's shortly thereafter that Lee comes out of the bar. And then when he hopped out, when the guy came out, he was walking out. He looked back, and Rob jumped up and said, you need money. And uh, the guy was really scared. And he said, oh, I don't have any money. That's when Rob pulled the gun out and In the next room, Brandon Roth's story lines up exactly with Storm's. I think they were scared. They, they were young. Um, Rob was a little bit older. He seemed a little bit more streetwise. Storm and Brandon, to me, did not appear to be masterminds of anything. They were very immature. They would have done anything Rob told them to do, and they did. When detectives show Brandon the ATM surveillance images, he recognizes the subject. He identifies Rob as being the person who took the money from the ATM. That's the first time they get an identification of who that is. As police set out to find Rob Garner, investigators subpoena his phone records, and they are stunned by what they discover. Before the murder, during the murder, after the murder, Rob was calling Jacqueline. The story that it's telling us is that Jacqueline was not sound asleep at the time. She either knows and wants this to happen, 
or she knows what's going on and doesn't want it to happen, but she didn't do anything to stop it. As investigators work to uncover Jacqueline's involvement, her brother, Rob Garner, is arrested at his apartment and brought in for questioning. Just let me explain something to you. I knew you were there because your cell phone was there. I was there. I, sister gave me the car. She was gonna get some money, she was gonna leave. Okay, well, I wanna be able to all attention, just put fear into him. I ain't taking no gun. I just wanted to scare the out of him before I even knew it. Storm, Storm jumped out, and that's when I heard pow. He blames Storm Davis for pulling the trigger. Police don't buy that. We had the cell phone records, Brandon's interview, Storm's interview, and, uh, you know, Rob didn't have a whole lot to say. Rob didn't really have a good answer. He is charged with first-degree premeditated murder. Despite having three assailants behind bars, detectives believe the true mastermind has yet to be arrested. Jacqueline's the closest person to our victim that we know of, and we feel we can prove that she was behind this murder. When detectives reach out to Lee's closest friends, they express concerns that Jacqueline had begun to take advantage of the carefree lifestyle her husband provided. She stopped working when they got married, when he bought the bar. She would come in the bar all the time. I knew that that was the owner's wife. She'd come in and tell me to give her $50 out of my drawer, and I would give it to her. But according to Lee's friends, his patience with his increasingly freeloading wife had begun to wear thin. She was very rude and obnoxious. She would start fights, she would get drunk and cause a real big scene. It was causing patrons to not want to come to the bar. So there was a conversation that Lee had with Jay that she was not allowed at the Hops Inn anymore. Had Lee wanted Jacqueline out of his life too? When you really kind of scratch the surface, you realize their marriage was not wonderful. It was all starting to slip away. Who would want to give that up? How far would you go to what lengths to keep the life you have? Detectives are eager to confront Jacqueline Martin, and they know exactly where to find her, Lee's funeral. I had a bad feeling something was going to happen. I noticed undercover cops. They were there. I was outside saying goodnight to somebody who was leaving, and all of a sudden, all these vehicles, all these cop vehicles, my heart stopped. They arrest Jacqueline, start reading her rights. And she says, Mommy, I didn't do this. Mommy, help me. Jacqueline is transported to Baltimore County Police Headquarters, where detectives immediately turn up the heat. Why would your brother kill your husband? He wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. He did do it. Your brother, Robert, but killed I me. I know, brother. He wouldn't do that. You set this whole thing up. No. Yes, you did because you thought you were going to get everything. Deeper into the interview, she started to talk about how this was all Rob's doing, and she had nothing to do with it. Why would your brother kill her? Did take care of me. Rob was always the one that was protecting us, protecting the girls and the family. When did you give your brother the card and the pin number? 
A couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. You gave him the card and the pin number. The baby needed diapers. Okay. And then what you do, just give him the card? It's just a yes or no. Did you give him the card? Yeah. Next, detectives confront Jacqueline about her recent banishment from Hops Inn. Why would a man bar his wife from his bar? According to everybody else, you weren't. I just didn't go in. You don't get it. You just don't get it. It's according to everybody else that you're listening to. I, I, you couldn't I stop it. me from going in my own bar. It wasn't your bar. I just didn't. You're only married to him. That's not your bar. It was ours. No, it wasn't. You had a prenuptial agreement, correct? And I just didn't go in. He didn't want me over there, and I was fine with that. It's all someone else's fault. She really took no responsibility whatsoever for any of this. There was obviously more to that story. Why did you lie to Detective Kobe and say you were asleep the whole time? Why did you lie? Because I was sleeping. You weren't sleeping. I mean, you were on. You were awake because you you were back and forth talking to your brother from 2:07 in the morning until 2:20 in the morning. You chip away slowly but surely at the little things. Her whole story just kind of crumbles. Coming up, a desperate motive exposes how far someone will go just to take it easy. If Lee divorced her, she knew she'd go back to the struggle. She knew she couldn't let that happen. I think she saw her life kind of spiraling out of control. in Baltimore, Maryland have discovered that just before Lee Martin was murdered, his 29-year-old wife Jacqueline was on the verge of losing the easy life she'd always wanted. Her marriage was going downhill, and she was going to lose her place because that was Lee's house. If he was going to divorce her, she was going to get what was due. And killing him seemed to get her a lot more than divorce would have gotten her. She knew she'd go back to the struggle. She knew she couldn't let that happen. She had lived that life before, and she was not willing to go back. When investigators confront her with this motive, Jacqueline scrambles. She eventually admits that, yes, she wanted him hurt, um, didn't know that he was going to be killed. <laughs> you you want him hurt. I just... How bad did you want him hurt? I just want him to know what it was like to walk around with a bruise on his face. She does paint this story of he beat me and I had black eyes and everybody knew it. According to Jacqueline, the abuse had been going on for about a year. She said, the abuse started somewhere in 2009, 2010. I was upset for my sister. I was mad. She claimed that he had um, put his hands on her. Despite Jacqueline's alleged intentions, detectives place her under arrest. I do think that she was reporting that to her family, that he was abusing her. But there were no police reports to say that. In Maryland, even if she just asked him to hurt him, she's still on the hook for the murder. Jacqueline, her brother, Rob Garner, and his two 19-year-old accomplices, Storm Davis and Brandon Roth, 
are all charged with first-degree murder. They each kind of make a little bit of statements towards one another, so we were going to try them separately. But before their days in court arrive, the two youngest defendants are quick to strike deals with the state. Both Storm Davis's and Brandon Roth's attorneys had approached us early on that they wanted to cooperate. They certainly were not the masterminds of this. They got sucked in, and so we did offer them plea deals where they would testify against the two of them. And in exchange for that, they got lesser time. As the two remaining trials approach, another defendant decides to fold. A year and a half goes by, and Rob wants to tell the whole story. Rob completely 100% implicated Jacqueline in this. Robert Garner had said that Jay had asked him to take care of Lee, and she would pay him $10,000. She wanted him to make it look like an accident the robbery gone bad. Jacqueline gave Rob the ATM card and the pin with the instructions to withdraw the money out of the ATM to purchase a firearm, but only do so if he was serious about completing the act. While Jacqueline stayed in bed, Robert says the plan was for him to do her dirty work. And the plan is to kill him, and he did. He sticks with the story that his sister was abused and he did it for his sister. In the back of my head, I kind of knew that he was involved somehow, some way. As prosecutors prepare their case against Jacqueline, they build a theory for her motive for the crime. They were still living in the house together, but they were essentially preparing to split up. You start to think, what do I have to do to keep this lifestyle? I can't let this slip away. She was desperate. She had him killed before she could lose out on his assets, her easy life, before he could divorce her, and she would lose everything. But in order to keep living in the house and not work, Jacqueline would need money. There was a life insurance policy on him for $300,000, so she would have gotten that. Though they're confident in their case, the state still offers Jacqueline the chance to avoid trial. We ended up making her the same plea offer we made him, which is the first-degree murder. Life suspended all but 60 years. What we offered, they took. On January 13, 2012, Jacqueline enters an Alford plea. An Alford plea is when a defendant acknowledges the fact that you have an overwhelming amount of evidence against them, and they're not admitting guilt, but they know that they would be convicted. Though Jacqueline's conviction offers some sense of closure, Lee's death is still keenly felt by those who knew him. Her daughter lost a good dad, and the boys, they lost a good dad. He was a good man, and he would do anything for anybody. And he didn't deserve that. I love my sister, I love my brother, regardless of this incident. But I don't condone it, not one ounce. There is no perfect person. We all live a life of sin. However, we have choice. 
and it is our choice to do right. I think she wanted the easy way out. She felt like his death was gonna free her, and I think instead it did the complete opposite. Jacqueline Martin is serving her sentence at the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. Her brother, Rob Garner, is at North Branch Correctional Facility. Sturm Davis and Brandon Roth served their sentences and were released in 2016 and 2015. For more information on Snapped, go to Oxygen.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.